Let me tell you a story. I was in New York City talking to an Islamic man. I didn't want to put him down because his beliefs were different from mine, but I wanted to have a discussion about our differing worldviews. He told me that he believed, in the end, our good deeds would simply be weighed against our bad deeds on a set of scales. I said, yeah, but how do you really quantify the weight of good and bad? How is the judgment made? Is it based on our own human ideas? Or is it based on the virtue of a holy and righteous God? He thought about it and didn't know how to respond. So I said, you see, Jesus died on the cross. He cut me off immediately and said with a bit of a smile as if to say, I know better than you. He said, Jesus didn't die on the cross. I paused and said to him, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, we're all in big trouble. His eyes widened and his jaw dropped. As I explained that no matter what our good deeds were, our evil deeds simply could not be overlooked. God is a just judge. A murderer would not be released based on his donations to charity. The charge of murder would have to be dealt with. That's where Jesus comes in. The meaning of the crucifixion is to pay the penalty of sin, eternal separation from God. This man did not become a Christian that day, as far as I know. But one thing I do know is that he had a lot to think about. You're listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. That's me, your fellow revolutionary. This episode is entitled, Tell the World. My special guest storyteller is Sarah Yardley. She grew up in a Christian home and attended a large church in Costa Mesa, California, where she was involved in praying for missionaries and even taking some short-term trips. Until the day when Jesus of Nazareth called her to be a long-term missionary across the pond in England. Believe it or not, England is a much different place from, say, the Bible Belt, where I live in the southern United States. England is now a post-Christian country. Listen closely as Sarah Yardley tells stories of some of her experiences. In the UK, 1% of 18 to 30-year-olds are what we would call evangelical Christian. And so uh, you've got a massive difference to life in, in America in that if you meet people on the street, by and large, they'll come from an atheist family, atheist home, atheist background. At least once a week, I will meet someone who will tell me that I am the first Christian that they have met. And for many of them, they believe that uh, Christianity is an outdated religion. It's old and musty and a little bit moldy. And so as I, as I meet people in day-to-day life, there's some beautiful stories of what God's doing, and there's some really heartbreaking ones as well. I travel quite a bit, and last week I was on a train, sat down opposite a young man on that train, and he very clearly did not want to talk. And so I kind of tried to chat a little bit, but nothing happened. So I sat back down in my seat. I pulled out my Bible to start reading it. And he leaned over and said, excuse me, are you reading a Bible? And he just saw on his face that he was astounded at the concept that any modern human would be reading a Bible. And I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's my favorite book. And we ended up having this fascinating conversation about the fact that from his perspective, 
if there was a God, he would have created the world and then abandoned it and then revealed himself only 2,000 years ago to a Bronze Age culture in Palestine and then abandoned it again. And just thinking about the misconceptions that come when we don't know or understand the character of God. And for this young man, he had never seen or understood the character of who God was. And he had only heard of who God was through the filter of an atheistic scientific viewpoint. And with this young man in particular, I believe that there are so many people that God allows us to cross paths with just to share a glimpse of the light of his love. We sometimes don't get to have the full opportunity to lead people to Christ, but we get to tell people that we believe there is a God, that we believe he loves them, that we believe that this love is not just something for us to hold on to, but it's something that changes and transforms our lives. There's many people that I meet like this young man where you have that conversation, but you don't see any of the fruit. But it's always a joy when you do get to see a little bit of the good things that God is doing. A similar story, I was traveling from Portugal to Exeter, sitting in a little airport and sat next to a girl called Daisy. And this girl called Daisy, absolutely radiant, one of the most beautiful girls I've ever met. And similarly, I was reading my Bible. She asked me what I was reading. And we began a conversation in which she told me that she had recently decided she wanted to become friends with God. It was such a beautiful picture to me of the, the way that the Facebook generation understands their first glimpse of faith. She said, I've been reading a book called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, which is a book on evangelism by Rebecca Pippert. And she said, I, I read it and I decided I want to become a friend of God. And so we began to talk and pray and I was able to send her a Bible and meet up with her regularly and for a period of time was the only Christian that she knew. And I've discovered within that time and that context that as people are discovering faith for the first time, there's such a necessary role for followers of Jesus to walk alongside new Christians. And I found that in Daisy's life, she'll ask me the most unexpected range of questions. It's anything from, can I be a Buddhist and a Christian? to why does God hate women, to I started reading this book that you gave me, a.k.a. the Bible, at the very beginning, but some parts of it are really confusing. Um, and I think one of the stories that God calls us to is to explaining and sharing His Word. And Daisy is absolutely one of those for me. A third story of just someone that God's allowed me to walk alongside in England is a friend that I met eight years ago, that very first summer that I came to England. But at the time she was a teenager, she wasn't walking with God, she didn't know anything about who he was. And she'll come with me to church, and she'll listen to worship, and she'll recognize that there's something different about the follower of Christ. But she's chosen not to hold on to faith in Christ. And over the eight years of knowing her, as I've watched her, I've watched every relationship in her life fail and disappoint her. I've watched everything she could run to for security fail and disappoint her. I've watched her family discourage and walk away from her. I've seen brokenness in her friendships. I've seen pain in her relationships. And one of the things that God has spoken to me about her is, if she has never seen faithfulness modeled, she's never seen the faithful love of any person shown towards her, 
how could she be expected to trust that there is a God who would be faithful towards her as well? And I believe my calling in her life, the part of the story that I'm called to play, is to simply show her the faithful, unchanging love of God. Because we who know and love Jesus know that it's not our actions that shape His love towards us. It's not our choices that change the way that He cares for us. His love for us is unfailing and unending. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I think of this friend of mine, eight years of loving her later and the pain that she goes through. And I just ask every day, every time that I speak to her, that God would give me the grace to continue to love her the way that He has loved me. And within each of these stories, I find that Jesus is always the hero. I love seeing the way that He breaks into people's lives and He breaks into people's hearts and souls. And often in England, I see the utterly miraculous work of God. I see the way that by His love and His calling, He is shaping the lives of the people that He desires to be part of His kingdom. And uh, one of the most significant of those, uh, a dear friend of mine, started waking up in the middle of the night and she would have words in her head. And this dear friend of mine, she has never been in a Christian family, a Christian context. She doesn't really know any Christians. And she would go Google these words in her head and the words that she Googled would be scriptures. And as she would Google these words and discover that they were scriptures, she would start to look at the passages of those scriptures online and began to read the Bible. And as she began to read the Bible, the truth of the Word of God really gripped her heart and gripped her soul. And so this girl uh, decided that she wanted to be a follower of Jesus. And the day that I met her was the day of her baptism. We got lost on the way to her baptism. It was on a rocky cliffside in the middle of nowhere. And we were driving endlessly and uh, ended up just waiting for her at her house. Her boyfriend, walking back from the baptism, began speaking to the pastor who baptized her and decided that he also wanted to become a Christian on the way back from the baptism. And I thought it was just such a beautiful, unexpected story of the way that God calls people into his kingdom. He uses radical things like dreams that are scriptures to win our hearts, but then uses really ordinary things too, like a car full of people getting lost so that the boyfriend would have no one else to talk to but the pastor. And uh, the pastor is a real man of God. He just gently shared the love of Christ with this woman and her boyfriend. And uh, they are both now committed Christians. They're both newlyweds, and they're on their honeymoon loving Jesus and loving the work that he has done in, his, in their lives. And I think just for the sake of this podcast, I wanted to encourage us in a couple of things. One is, let's just the story that God is writing for our lives. Let's expect that what He is doing in our lives is beautiful and unexpected. And if you're one who has walked faithfully with God for many years, amen and hallelujah, and let's be those who are sharing the story that God is writing with others. Let's, let's be those who are vocalizing the faithful work of God to others. The second thing I want to encourage us in within the story that God is writing is to simply walk alongside people and help them discover God's story for their lives as well. There's a practical reality in our world in that there are many who are walking away from faith, who have not discovered the power of the love of God for their own lives, who haven't experienced 
the overflowing presence of the Holy Spirit. And so for we who know and have experienced those things, I believe it's so much our call to walk alongside others in that. And as, as I was preparing for this podcast and the idea of story, I live in England. So most of my examples and stories, all the ones that I've shared so far, have been from a UK perspective. But I came back to Orange County, California, and I actually went to Nordstrom and to the makeup counter. And as I sat behind the makeup counter, the girl who was just there doing makeup and testing skincare products on me began to speak with me. And she shared about the broken home she had come from and living in New York and having a relationship with a man who had no faith whatsoever. And uh, the fact that she felt like she was caring for her body and dealing with her emotions, but that there was nothing for her spirit. And we began to speak about the love of God and the way that the story of Christmas is Emmanuel. He is God who is with us, but he's not the God who came and was far from us, but he's the God who came to be present with us. And not only was he born, and that's the Christmas story, but he lived and walked and died and lived again. And because of this, he is the God who's not just with us for a season. He's the God who is with us for all eternity. And I was simply reminded of the fact that every day, every person that we meet in some way is hungry for the presence of God. And God has given us who are his followers the words of life to share the story of his love with a world that is lost and dying and broken. And so when I say, let's take opportunities to share the love of God, I believe that there's so many different ways and places that we can do that. That happens at makeup counters and in coffee shops, over packaging counters and in buses, trains, and automobiles. There are so many ways and places that God has called us to share the story of what He is doing. It's not just for today or tomorrow. It's not just for America or England. It is forever. I am continually amazed at the way the forever love of God forever changes our hearts and lives. Thank you so much, Sarah Yardley. The stories that God tells never cease to amaze me. Who would have thought that God would simply give a person dreams of words, and then, in our information age, that they would be Googled and found to be Scripture, the very Word of God. You're listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. This episode is called Tell the World. You know, I was reminded of a story I heard, an allegory really, of uh, an area of coast that was adjacent to a particularly rough portion of sea. The area was dangerous in particular because there were some hidden reefs that often caused calamity for the ships that would come through. And then people who lived in that area, after seeing so much disaster and loss of life due to the dangerous underwater terrain, decided that something had to be done. They would make a rescue center. They set up this place and they volunteered round the clock to help prevent these vessels from finding certain doom. Or if they couldn't avoid the reefs, they would pull these guys out of the water after the ship had crashed. And this rescue facility saw many ships avoid catastrophe, and they pulled lots of people out of the water and saved them. And then the people who got rescued became so happy. They were saved from dangers that oftentimes, like these hidden reefs, 
They didn't even know they existed. They couldn't see him. The people were so grateful that they would then volunteer at the rescue center and save people themselves. Throughout the years, the original founders passed away or moved on into different areas, and only those who had actually been rescued continued to volunteer and run the facility. In time, they found opportunities to celebrate their mutual love of the center and the work done by the volunteers. And donations came in from people who had been rescued who were well off, or from people who observed and valued the work being done there. They took the money and the facility was revamped and updated. The outside of it used to look rough and the inside, you know, it was just for utilitarian purposes. But after this money had come in, it became really nice looking and stylish. And soon celebrations became the main function of the organization. Members of the group would meet often and have parties with their friends and families. By that time, not too many rescues were taking place anymore. They had such a nice building and the group didn't want to bring in these wet people that got pulled out of the ocean. and They didn't want to mess up their carpets or ruin their expensive furniture. Sadly, something was often said among the group that went like this. I wish these people would avoid these reefs. Can't they see the dangers of what they're doing? I know this is kind of a crude analogy, but you see what I'm saying, don't you? How the church is kind of similar on some level? We, who are members of God's church, have been rescued from a hazard that, in many ways, was unseen. We didn't even know what we were doing would send us to hell. And like the Coastal Rescue Center, the church, in some cases, has become more like a social club. I remember when a friend of mine left a particular fellowship and he gave me this reason. He said, I can't play church. Does that sound strange to you? It really isn't that strange. I mean, think about it. Are we unknowingly making strides toward becoming just social clubs? Are we avoiding the sinners who normally wouldn't come into church? Also, would they normally not be welcome in our nice buildings? We cannot forget that we ourselves are sinners, deserving condemnation. It's only through the intervention of Jesus that we are heaven-bound. To give you an idea, how do we treat a person who's battling same-sex attraction? Or how about the person who's not battling it, and they think that it's perfectly right? How do we tell them the truth? Do we do it in a loving manner or a condemning manner? How do we minister to the post-abortive woman or girl who thought she had no other choice and is now in the deepest throes of depression? Do we look down on her? Is that what Jesus would do? I'm in tears when I think of this. I have a hard time envisioning Jesus, the king of the world, yes, the king of all existence, hanging on the cross and thinking, I sure hope they don't let those sinners in the church. Or, I sure hope they don't minister to those people they shouldn't associate with. On the contrary, Jesus is God. And God is love. Love is what put him on the cross. His love for mankind. You know, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk because of the people he ministered to. 
Then you think of the religious leaders who actually entered into a murder conspiracy to kill Jesus. They even paid off an informant to find him. They're literally like organized criminals. And they accused Jesus of being a glutton? Murderers? Oh, you eat too much. You enjoy too much food. Ridiculous. Jesus is the savior. He is the one who can change people. Our job is to show people the love that he has shown us. If you disagree with someone, love them. Is someone hurting you? Love them. Remember, our great revolutionary was hurt and hated before us. They pulled out his beard at the roots. They beat him while he was blindfolded. They ripped his flesh apart with a cat of nine tails. Ultimately, they nailed him to a wooden cross as a despicable criminal. Isaiah, the ancient prophet, wrote about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, and he said that our great revolutionary could scarcely be identified as a human after he had endured all this. Now this is just a small picture of the greatness of his love. He endured the beatings and he endured the cross because he knew this was the only way to redeem humanity. Somebody had to pay the penalty for all of our sins. Only Jesus has the power and only Jesus has the qualifications. With this great foundation and background primer of love, we are to reflect his love to others and introduce them to Jesus. Not the fake Jesus depicted as a stoic with blonde hair and blue eyes, but the real Jesus of Nazareth, who was a rugged man, whose face was probably sun-kissed and he worked with his rough hands. The real Jesus of Nazareth, who stopped at nothing to love the unlovable. He met them right where they were. The real Jesus of Nazareth, who didn't let racial issues keep him from talking to Gentiles who were considered a lower class. His love is radical. It goes beyond all that. The real Jesus, who was always at odds with the religious establishment, those who thought they could earn salvation by virtue of their good deeds or who they were, really who they thought they were, they had no idea. They discounted the reality of Jesus completely man and completely God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who put the earth in orbit, the one who put the sun into the Milky Way galaxy and into the superclusters and on and on. This Jesus, author of the revolution, unlike other revolutions, this one founded on love, unconditional love. Nothing stopped him from loving us even when it meant dying a horrible death. When the enemy of our souls thought Jesus was defeated, when he hung there on the cross lifeless, Jesus had actually attained the greatest victory of all. On the third day, he emerged from the tomb alive, displaying his power over death itself. Those who searched the tomb found it empty. This is our great revolutionary. Let's tell people about him and introduce people to the great love of Christ. 
Let's listen to him in his word, through his people, and in that still, small voice. Be bold with your faith in Jesus. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. He's more powerful than you can imagine. I remember when, after a Wednesday night study, that my brother, see episode one, Turnaround, was compelled to share the gospel with somebody and to show how great the love and power of Christ really is. We turned around in our seats and my brother Jim started telling a young man who was not a follower of Christ about all the changes that Jesus had made for him. Jim told him about how he had been in prison for using and dealing drugs and about how Jesus took away the addictions and had really turned his life around and that how now he has the hope of heaven. Because while the transformation of his life here on earth was miraculous, it was nothing compared to the promise of an afterlife, one with God in heaven, as opposed to the alternative. This young man's response was cavalier. He said, well, sounds like you need God. You ruined your life. I don't need God. My life is good. I don't need religion. I'm only here because my girlfriend goes to church. When he said this, something began to well up and burn within me. It was anger. Who did this guy think he was? Does he think he's better than us? I felt like it was my duty to tell him otherwise. I laid into him. I felt almost out of control. I told him about how we are all sinners, how we all need Jesus. But I took it too far. I basically painted him as a helpless and useless person utterly destined to fail. I was not loving at all. In fact, I even shocked myself with my harshness. He told me about the classes he was taking to one day work in film, but I cut him off and said to him how he would never be a success and that he needed to receive Christ as Savior because he was also hellbound. Do you think this was an effective way to win someone to Christ? Obviously not. In fact, I made such an impression on some of my friends that day that for a while they called me the angry evangelist. I was ashamed by this event. I immediately went to some of the elders of the church and even the senior pastor and told them what I had done. I was not met with harsh criticism or assigned re-education. Instead, I was met with grace. The suggestion was made that perhaps this young man really needed to hear some of the facts that I put forward. It was hard for me to accept, and I carried around the guilt of this for a while. Then, a couple months later, the Easter service came. Our church had obtained a permit to hold the event at a local park. We set up a luxury tent where a stage was constructed. A fairly well-known musical act was hired, and Easter was a big hit. As one of the staff pastors, I was asked to be the first point of contact for any of the people who came forward in response to the altar call. These were the people who wanted to become Christians. Who came forward, you ask? Well, of course, this young man who I had talked to some months back. 
the one for which I earned the moniker, the Angry Evangelist. I thought to myself, <laughs> uh-oh, this might not be pretty. But I was wrong. He had a huge smile on his face, and he wanted to give his life to Jesus. I recall often seeing him at the church after this event, seemingly filled with joy and wearing a large smile, just like on Easter. We talked whenever we were at church and his career in film actually seemed to be going well. He had secured a job after graduation. He worked with one of the well-known production companies in the LA area. It was amazing to me. God seemed to be faithful and working in this young man's heart even after I had blown it. God is good, I thought. I wish that were the end of the story, but it's not. I recall one Sunday morning when he was asked to read a text of scripture from the pulpit, and he was wearing a t-shirt sporting satanic symbols. I didn't think much of it, but he was later approached by the pastor. I didn't hear the conversation, but I saw it, and I could tell that this young man was not receiving whatever the pastor said. After that, I never saw him again, and from what I hear, he is no longer walking with the Lord. So, what's the point of this story? To be quite honest, I don't know. I am still trying to make sense of it some 15 years later. Any ideas? Send me an email. Jason at TalesOfTheRevolution.com Well, as the Doctor of Style Slick used to say, the party's over. But not really. There are plenty more stories to hear at TalesOfTheRevolution.com And when you're there, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and anywhere you get podcasts. Also, subscribe to the email list. If you do, you'll receive exclusive content downloads that are not available anywhere else. You don't want to miss out. Again, TalesOfTheRevolution.com and be sure to follow us on social media, facebook.com slash tales of the revolution. We could use more likes. Tell all your friends. On Twitter, at Jason Vreeke. On Instagram, at real Jason Vreeke. That's V as in victory, R-E-E-K-E. -E. Thank you so much for listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. This episode is entitled, Tell the World. So why don't we make an agreement to do just that? Tell the world about the real Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest revolutionary of all. <laughs>